The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You're all here waiting for something to happen. <laughs> so I think I'll talk a little bit tonight about hey Joe, about um, wisdom and love. Uh, a version, I gave a version of this talk at Common Grounds Retreat just a couple weeks ago. Slightly different tonight, but um, and then I want to save ample time to hear from each other. So just to share what's on our hearts and maybe we can talk about how the talk landed, but also just to share your What's moving in your heart currently? So, so, so. So, what are we actually doing here with our practice? Does anybody wonder that sometime? Like, what the hell am I doing with this? <laughs> I come here to Common Ground every Wednesday night and hear a Dharma talk and do my practice on my own and, like, what's the point of all this? And these are really, it's a normal reflection that happens in every practitioner's life. Sometimes, quite often, and other times, not for years, but it's really okay to sort of normalize all of that. Um, all that we feel, all that we wonder, all that we question. And to remember that at the heart of our practice, what we're doing is engaging in purification, right? So it's not that, you know, every time it... It's not that purification is easy or straightforward, but it is that every time we make some effort to be awake, it really matters, right? And the Buddha talked about the this path of purification being one that takes a long time, that it's a process, not something that um, just suddenly arises. And you have seen this in your lives in lots of ways. You know, when you are working through some struggle, some emotional thing, or trying to change a habit, it doesn't just change overnight. You might have a realization that, like, oh, if I brush my teeth every night, my teeth stay clean and I don't get cavities when I go to the dentist, right? But it's not like if you, you have that idea, then all of a sudden you're not going to get cavities. You have to have the idea and then practice the teeth brushing every night on a regular basis, even when you don't want to, to see some results, right? It's kind of purifying the health of your teeth. I don't know if that's right, but <laughs> something like that. It's sort of like purifying the mind is this slow and gradual process. The Buddha used this analogy of like a ship, I'm not going to get all the details quite right, but a ship being um, docked and weathered over season after season after season and how the, the ropes that are tethering the ship to the, anchoring the ship to the dock just kind of wear away slowly by the water and the sand and the sun. And, right? This is kind of what the 
path of purification is like for us too, for our hearts. It's just kind of a slow, gradual um, uncovering of the truth of things. The truth of, you know, what's, what's beneath all of, all of our reactive habits and um, personality quirks. Like, what's beneath all that? And hopefully what we find is that there's just a purity of kindness that's there and availability and accessibility, acceptance, right? These things that I was pointing to in the guided meditation. And we can taste this freedom or this uh, truth in doses, in moments. We don't have to wait until... 20 years for purification to happen or 10 years or two months or whatever it is for each of us. We don't have to wait until enlightenment to actually taste the fruits of our practice, to taste the fruits of purification. Right? We notice this every time the mind is like, ah, oh, I'm here. Right? Like today in the meditation, you've probably had that experience many times when it's just like, ah, oh, you know, plunk, like I'm here. I'm actually in the present moment. I feel my breath. Like, oh, there's a kind of ease sometimes to that landing in the present moment's experience. (coughs) Like, oh, the heart feels like this. Like, oh, there's a thought. Or that's a feeling, right? I have emotion. It's there. Oh, there's this sadness. And even in that moment of sadness or despair or fear, whatever it is, there can be this kind of freedom and being able to be with it, right? And this is, this is the fruit. We're tasting the fruit of practice. We're tasting the fruit of purification in each and every moment like that. But often what we're seeing, we don't necessarily always see that purification is happening, we don't always notice the fruits of purification in those moments. What we notice, we kind of get absorbed into the object, right? And especially if it's unpleasant. We're like, oh, this really sucks. Like this icky feeling or this unpleasant body sensation. The mind is reactive and um, revolting against it. And so that's kind of what we, we get absorbed into the content or into the object more than we notice, we learn to notice. We can learn to notice, but we don't always notice that, that kind of um, capacity to be with or to meet and that taste of freedom that's there even when it's difficult. So it's good to notice, it's really good to practice, to train in noticing that sense of ease or peace that's there throughout our life. Because that's actually guiding us and helping us to um, develop more confidence in what we're doing. Even if we don't always know where it's headed, where we're leading, where it's leading, where we're headed.
And if we need any motivation to do this practice, I mean, we really don't have to look very far. Like, I don't always know what's needed in the world or in my life. But what I can be sure of is that a reactive heart, a heart that is just bound in its reactive habits without any capacity to taste that freedom that's possible, even in difficulty, is not the way to go. Like, you can ask that question. You know, that it's kind of a big question, like, oh, I don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to try out this big question. Does it help to act out my anger? Does it actually yield benefits that I want? Well, I can test that theory, or I can test that um, question, and usually the answer is no. But is it possible to feel the flow of anger, to feel that burst of energy, and relax around it and still be able to move forward? Because that is an act of love, right? That capacity to keep moving to be, and to fully accept our humanness is an act of love. Well, that's what I'm going for, right? So then we have to be able to taste that, uh, that peace that's there even in moments of great difficulty. And we can take this into our lives as partners and siblings and friends and engaged community members. There's so much reactivity in the world right now, in our communities, in our lives. There's so much acting out of um, all of the defilements, the hindrances, the, our reactive habits, these kind of habits that have been cultivated by a lack of awareness, right? these patterns that we see in ourselves that we might want to shift. And this is what our practice does with the purification process. It's transforming those habits into um, a, more, a capacity to be more skillful, right? To react, to respond out of kindness rather than out of hatred. And we can take up any cause that we care about. We can walk around in our families, in our communities, on the bus, in our workplace, down the street. We can read the news, listen to the radio, and we can see human beings acting out in these really unskillful ways. It doesn't take much right now. It's heartbreaking, right? And to feel like, oh, sweetie, I'm a part of that too. Like, I do that too. I do that every time that I fail to watch my mind. So what is the answer? I mean, it's really just being mindful, right? And with every effort that we make, every courageous step that we make to actually land in what it's like to be a human being, we get one step closer to being able to notice that, taste that freedom that's, that's possible. And with that taste of freedom, then we can keep moving with right response, with right action, with having a fighting chance of having a conversation with our partners, even when there's anger moving in the heart. I know what this is like. (laughs) 
We all probably do, right? Finding something trustworthy about our human experience, something trustworthy about this capacity to meet these difficulties and not cave, not give up, surrender to the reactivity, but to actually find ways to keep moving in our life. So it's good to reflect on our intentions every day. At the beginning of the day or at some point during the day, a sacred time, just to remember, like, why do you care? Why do we care? Why do we care about practice? Why does this matter to us? Why does the purifying the heart to transforming these reactive habits into habits of kindness, why does that make a difference? You know? Because just that act of um, caring about our intentions really generates faith, like confidence to like, keep going. And it doesn't mean that there has to be a, um, a scripted way to practice, right? I'm really practicing outside the box right now for lots of reasons. So we all get to do that, kind of decide what makes sense, what forms of practice make the most sense in our lives. Maybe it's formal sitting practice. Maybe it's walking practice. Maybe it's being really engaged with our children in our homes, daily life practice. Maybe it's practicing taking up something like right speech and really practicing it to the fullest. Maybe it's really uh, supporting the movement of energy by chanting or singing as part of our practice, maybe it's some ritual or devotional practice. There's lots of ways to practice, right? Engaged practice, solo practice, practicing seclusion when we need to practice seclusion, practicing engagement, discerning when the right time is for each of those things. Mark is on a retreat right now. I remember talking to him right before he left. He's retreating five days a week and then coming home on the weekend, still retreating, but doing some more interpersonal stuff. He'll be teaching on Sundays, for example. And just like hearing him say, like, I really need seclusion right now. And that's such a beautiful thing to be able to discern that for ourselves. Like, when, when is the right time for to retreat, to be quiet, to be still, to sit down for half an hour or more, to take a weekend for dedicated practice or a day, or four weeks, or whatever it is. But all of these, being creative, being willing to think outside the box about what our practice is, just keeps us more and more on the path. And that really begins by understanding what our intentions are, why we care about practice. Using the thinking mind to reflect, using the thinking mind for something good, right? How often do our thoughts catch us off guard or seduce us into some sweeping us away into some old habitual thing, right? How many times are we sitting down on the cushion going like, oh God, the thoughts are just coming and coming and coming, right? Or the thought, I'm, I'm back now, but I was swept away by this fantasy or memory <coughs> or whatever. 
So setting intentions is actually a way of using the thinking mind for something good, right? Yeah. And just remembering, going back to this, what it means to purify. If you've ever done like a cleanse or, I don't know, anything that's purifying, or if you've had an air filter and you see all the particles of debris that the air filter traps, right? It's not pretty. <laughs> and the path of, this path of purification, purifying the heart of um, its reactive habits isn't always easy or pretty either. You know, it involves being intimate with uh, all of the things that scare us, all of the things we don't like, right? All of the parts of ourselves that we'd rather not notice. This is what purification asks of us, to be intimate, actually. Not just to notice, but to get close, be intimate with all of those things, right? All of those things that we think we're hiding from other people (laughs) walk around in the world and think, oh, they don't notice that about me. (laughs) They don't notice how insecure I get. Or whatever it is. It requires this, just a bold honesty to say yes to this, whatever this is, this difficult expression of, for me, of what it likes to be human, or what it's like to be human. And then a willingness to get close, closer and closer and closer so that wisdom comes along, right? So when, we meet, when we meet experience, when we're able to meet, when mindfulness meets experience, there's that contact, like, oh, the body is like this. And then mindfulness kind of does its job and gets interested. Oh, having a body is like this. There's all these sensations, there's this, vibration, there's this change happening, right? And as mindfulness stays interested, as awareness, the mind, the aware mind stays interested, then there's a growing capacity for continuity. Like the interested mind wants to continue to be interested, right? So once the mind is interested, then it, there's some momentum, like, oh, it becomes easier. It becomes easier. And you've probably noticed this if you have a regular sitting practice. Over time, the amount of time that you can sit still on the cushion increases with time, right? Because there's some continuity or some momentum. You can probably see this throughout a day if you've ever done a day-long retreat or over nine days if you've done a longer retreat. The interested mind actually doesn't want to go to sleep, right? Sometimes on retreat, you don't need as much sleep. Because the, there's just so much momentum. The mind just wants to stay awake, wants to notice. And as it's continuing to notice, the noticing gets deeper and deeper. And that's wisdom that's doing its job. Wisdom is like, oh, not only is the body like this, but the body is, the sensations are changing. So tasting that deeper truth of impermanence, like change is always happening, even right here in the body. 
Like, oh, the body is not the same right now as it was one second ago. Oh, wait, not only is the body not the same, but my relationship to the body is not the same, right? So we're seeing all of this, and like, oh, wait, the body just got sick on its own. I didn't have any control over that, right? So the body's not actually mine either. But this, these deeper truths really only arise when there's enough continuity there. And as there's continuity and wisdom arises, then it becomes easier to have some faith in the practice. Like, oh, I can see. Right? I can see what the Buddha meant. Or I can understand a little bit better what Mark talks about here at Common Ground. And that makes me want to look a little deeper and see a little more clearly. But it re- and it really begins by that willingness to be intimate, to get close to the truth of things, all the truths. Thanks for managing that for us. <laughs> told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I was on retreat this summer for a month at the Forest Refuge, which is a very nice place to practice on the IMS campus, the, Insight, the campus at Insight Meditation Society. It's a place where people, you have your own room, and you're just kind of uh, practicing <coughs> according to your own schedule, and there's teachers that are there, and they give Dharma talks six days a week, and you have an interview with the teacher every three days. And then they give instructions six days a week in the morning. And then other than that, you're on your own to practice the way you want. It's really quiet there. It's, there's people kind of coming in and out. Um, some of you have been there, I know. But they come in and out on, people come in and out at the beginning of the month or the middle of the month um, generally. But it's so quiet and it's such a well-oiled machine that you really don't even feel the change. All of a sudden you see somebody new in the room and, You realize that they're new, but you didn't hear them come in the door or anything like that. So I was there practicing, and I really, um, I I work not only at Common Ground, but in schools. And so, at least for now, I'm bound to the school schedule, or so it feels. So in the summer, for the last eight or nine years, I've taken a month for practice and really um, look forward to that kind of time for seclusion and going away, and really just want to, you know, always have this intention to just take full advantage of it. And so I did that, and for a while I've been practicing on my own without teachers. I'd go off to the, maybe the retreat property or somewhere else like that and do my own solo practice, solo practice for a few weeks. So this summer, going on retreat to the Forest Refuge where everything is taken care of for me and there's two lovely teachers giving instructions every day, it felt like dessert all the time. It was so great. I was just eating it up. It doesn't mean retreat was easy, but having some the kind of support of teachers around all the time was really, really nice. And so it comes time for me to leave after my month there, and I was really wanting to practice to the very last minute. So my shuttle was coming. I knew at like 2 o'clock or something like that and um, 
had lunch, did a little more sitting. Did a, it was really hot. It was like 100 degrees in Massachusetts that day, so didn't really want to be outside. But there's this nice room in the basement. It was cold floor. The temperature was just right. Nobody was down there. So I was just down there practicing. It was, it, was, it still clearly feels nice. <laughs> Up until I looked at my watch and was like, yep, the shuttle will be here in five minutes. So I got up, walked out the door, grabbed my bag. The shuttle was already there. I hopped in the shuttle, and in 30 seconds, two minutes, five minutes, we were on the road, and in 10 minutes on the freeway. And it was like going from the countryside in this silent container where everybody's being really careful and kind to being bombarded with stimuli in very short order, right? All the sounds and the busy shuttle where multiple people were there and traffic. And I was just, I had a headache and I felt nauseous. And I just kept thinking like, oh, just get me to the airport. When I get to the airport, it'll be better. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That wisdom wasn't there. So I get to the airport, and I'm like, okay. I go inside, and not only is it all of that, all that stimuli, but people were just in a rush and bumping into each other and really not being kind at all. It was so, uh, it was overwhelming. And I found myself going like, oh, just get me to the gate. When I get to the (laughs) gate, it'll be better. I'll close my eyes, I'll sit down, and I'll wait. So I go through security and I get to the gate, and when I get to the gate, there are delays, and not my plane, but in that little area, and it was just more of the same. People frustrated, lots of commotion, lots of everything, reactive habits flying all around. And I was like, oh God. Just get me on the plane. (laughs) Once I get on the plane, I'll just sit there and I'll close my eyes until I get home. It'll be great. So I get on the plane (laughs) and I'm sitting next to these two people who were flying from Massachusetts to Minnesota for a vacation. They hadn't had a vacation in like 20 years. And they just wanted to talk and talk (laughs) and talk. And there was so much resistance, like, oh, I just want what I had, right? I don't want this, (laughs) whatever this is. And so that was just kind of watching the mind and being with it. And at some point, there was just like a release of all of that tension, right? Like, sweetie, the conditions are not what they were anymore. (laughs) This is what the world is like. So what are you going to do? And it wasn't even like Shelley was making this great effort to do something, but the mind just went like, I guess I'll just be here (laughs) and see what happens. And it wasn't like there was any less stimulation. There was still talking and loudness and, you know, movement of the plane and all of that. And, but there wasn't any resistance to it. It was difficult because it wasn't pleasant. But the difficulty didn't come from the resistance. There was still a taste of freedom that was possible there. It was such a lovely moment. 
And I had a perfectly lovely conversation with this woman almost all the way to Minneapolis. And really, there was so much love there. There was so much happiness. She was joy. I was like sharing her joy. I had some mudita, like, oh, so happy you get to um, take a vacation. I heard so much about her story as her personal journey and struggles. And yeah, there was just so much gratitude in, in the heart. It was so surprising that with all of that resistance, once there was a letting go, like once the mind let go, once the heart released all of that tension, that reactivity, then it just freed up space for something that was there all along but couldn't be noticed, right? This natural kindness. There's this uh, quote that I love from this 18th century Tibetan master, Shabkar, I think. The mind's nature is as vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. The mind's nature is as vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Uh, That ceaselessly responsive part is so nice. It's all nice, but that ceaselessly responsive, like... The heart wants to move. It has the capacity to move, to feel the joys, the sorrows of the world. It has this potential to continue to respond, right? to care. That natural kindness that's there is always there. It's just not always visible to us. So it's this balanced practice always embraces both wisdom, wise understanding, as well as the capacity of the heart to care, which we might call love or kindness or compassion. But one without the other is imbalanced. If we're just looking for the deepest truths, then we're missing what it means to be human. If we're just soft and sentimental about life, then we're out of balance because we're not really fully understanding what it means to have bare attention or what what bare attention is like. Bare attention is like wisdom that meets experience in its rawest form. with the eyes taken, with the ears here, the thoughts, not getting confused by all of that. We're not getting confused in taking any of that personally when this wise understanding of bare attention is available. We're just noticing like, oh, thoughts are, this is a thought, a thought's being known. Or this is sound, sound's being known. There's a, an, another story in the suttas about, I've also told this before, so you were here last time, bear with me. <laughs> but just recounting some things that have been inspiring to me lately. And this story I have, has stuck with me for months now, and I think about this all the, all the time. 
Um, the story about Bahia in the suttas, in the teachings, in the scriptures. Bahia of the bark. Bahia of the bark, I think, is what he was called. He was an aesthetic at the time of the Buddha. Um, lived very simply. He just had bark as his clothing. He lived 12,000 miles away from the Buddha, something like that. He was a wise man, and people would come to him for advice. They would bring him food. And so it sort of made him wonder, like, wow, people think I'm really wise. Like, maybe I really am wise. Actually, maybe I'm enlightened. And as the story goes, some uh, celestial beings came down to visit Bahia and were like, mm, no, you're not enlightened. I mean, you know some things, but you're not enlightened. And, but if you want to be enlightened, you know you should go talk to. You should go talk to the Buddha. Because the Buddha is actually awake, an awakened, the awakened one. And he can help you share the teachings. right? So Bahia is like, all right, I'll go. Now, walking 12,000 miles in Asia at that time, it was like, oh, um, up, like 1,200 miles up 12,000 feet of elevation. Now, we don't know if these numbers are exactly right, but let's just say he walked a long way. It was far. It wasn't paved paths, and there were no trains to take him from point A to point B. So that willingness to set and reset an intention to walk to get to the Buddha for the teachings, right? Can you imagine that? Alone is enough of the story. Like, what, do, what, is, what would we do that much for in our life? Walk mountainous regions t- over 12,000 feet, 1,200 miles, to get the teachings. And it's not like it was easy, right? Walking up hills, no paved paths, animals, <coughs> creatures, darkness these things that are scary again and again and again, day after day. So it wasn't that Bahia had this, or I don't imagine, that Bahia had this mind that didn't taste fear. He wasn't an enlightened being at the time. So he must have tasted fear, but the intention to keep moving And the taste of freedom that was possible must have been so strong to keep him going, right? So he walks, he gets to the Buddha, gets to the monastery, and the Buddha wasn't there. The Buddha was out on alms rounds. And so he goes out to find the Buddha while the Buddha is collecting his food for the day and says, I walked a long way. Please share with me the teachings in brief. And the Buddha says, not now, Bahia, it's not the right time. And this is kind of how things go in the suttas, where somebody comes to the Buddha for something, they ask three times, and the Buddha finally delivers the goods. Right? So this is what happens. (laughs) Bahia asked three times, and the Buddha said, okay, Bahia, I'll give you the teachings. And this is what he said. This is like the teachings in brief. Give me, you know, sum up... (laughs) all of the teachings right now in a moment. And this is what, so you listen, right? Like, oh, the Buddha's going to give everything in this few minutes. 
Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will only be the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself thus. When for you there will only be the seen in reference to the seen, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. You are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. So that's the teachings, right? <laughs> what is, the Buddha is just giving an, not just, the Buddha is giving an instruction on bare attention, right? He's saying like, uh, we often get confused by what we take in through our senses. We often get confused by the thoughts that go on in our head. We think that they just, we, they seem so personal. They reinforce a sense of self. We think the body is supposed to be well, not aging. And then we get surprised when we get sick or have some life-limiting illness come our way or have a family member. We, this is, these are all of the ways that we kind of personalize what is just empty, right? The empty nature of experience that comes in through the sense gates. And the Buddha is also pointing to kind of what I said earlier was just that this path of purification is a gradual one. He said, he didn't say to Bahia, you need to sit down and you'll get this, and when you get this, you'll be enlightened. He said, you should train yourself thus, right? You should train yourself. A training isn't a one-time thing. It's an ongoing cultivation of responsiveness, setting down of reactivity, and discovering what's there, this ceaselessly responsive heart. And then the Buddha, thankfully, points to the result. This is the end of stress, the end of suffering, or the ultimate freedom. So just a beautiful reminder of, you know, like holding, holding wisdom, the deepest wisdom, alongside the deepest compassion, right? We don't want to forget either that this wisdom to know the truth, that the ultimate truth is important. And we have to begin right where we are, right, in this human experience, just like Bahia did, right? He wasn't without fear or reactivity on that long walk to, to the Buddha, but yet he kept resetting, resetting intentions along the way so that he could receive the deepest truths.
What better gift could we give ourselves, our families, than to really take the time, make the effort to taste the freedom that's available in each moment, to be able to be intimate with difficulty so that we can learn to respond with kindness, You might be thinking about all of the ways that it feels utterly impossible to respond with kindness. But it also felt really impossible to be bombarded with all of this negative, uh, all of this unpleasant stimuli and still be at peace and still feel generosity or um, gratitude or appreciation for somebody else's happiness on the airplane. Right? It felt really impossible. And so we don't have to know the way forward. We just have to want to continue to stay on the path. And that always begins with our intentions. So I'd like to open it up now for questions or comments. It'd be just nice to hear what's moving in your heart these days and what you're working with and how you're working with it. You can ask questions if you'd like. It's just good to feel like we're a part of community. And then hold this like an ice cream cone right to your face. Hi, I'm Leah. And thank you for the talk, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me remember a couple weekends ago, I went out of town up north to... Um, relative's house, so my stepmom and my father that adopted me. And I've never lived with them, but I've spent summers, just little short amounts of time. But I would have to say, every time I'm up there, I'm just like, ugh, you know, not comfortable. I, I didn't grow up in this household. It's really challenging to be in an environment that um, I feel really closed in, like they don't open their curtains and they live on a lake. They don't turn off the TV. Or, you know, there's always, there was this, like, I can say they don't, they don't, they don't. Like a string of those things. And it was always that, like, oh man, they're just not this and they're not that. And they don't eat vegetables and fruits. (laughs) So, (laughs) So here I go, the don'ts. But, so I went up there with intention, like, okay, how can I show up in this experience? Because it's gone really horribly in the past, multiple times. But this time, I'm like, how can I show up? And I just found all this space for just letting the curtains be shut and being okay with that. Like that, that little phrase Mark always says is, it's not a problem, right? So the, it's not a problem. And I just kept doing that. And then just to see that the two humans that live in that house, how challenging it was for them to have two children and myself, two young children running around, disrupting their things that are always in place. It just, it was so freeing for a weekend. And that's, it just, it felt like such a testament to this, to this, what we're doing here. It's transformative. Anyway, just wanted to share that. Thanks, Leah. 
Reminds me of a, another story I heard. Just um, Some of you have probably heard Kamala Masters tell this story about her colleague Sharon Salzberg, who was um, in her, when she was young, on a trip in Asia or somewhere in Asia, and um, she was on a gondola. No, she was on a rickshaw. That makes more sense. <laughs> and somebody was trying to steal her bag, right? And she was telling the story to, telling that to her teacher, Manindra. And Manindra said something like, what did you do? And she was like, uh, whatever she did. And he was like, you should have beaten him with your bag. <laughs> because it's not good for you to let that happen, and it's not good for him to do that, right? So that is like, you know, that is such a great... <laughs> I'm not suggesting that we beat each other with things, but just that um, question in my mind, that, that story has, um, has seeded since I heard it, was like, how, what is the extent to which love is... Uh, no, not, no. Like, how far can love really take me? Is it possible to act in the fiercest way, like a mother protecting her child, or like, is it possible to, like, you know, hit somebody with a bag and go like, no, that's not okay that you steal my bag. It's not okay for your heart, and it's not okay for mine. Like, is it? What's the extent that to which our actions can be motivated by this kind of depth of kindness? I don't. I don't know, but. I'm curious, and I want to keep practicing to, to find out. Okay, so I'm going to be a donor. <laughs> you know what I've been going through, and my heart is broken. Um, I had a engineer at my house today that I counted on like crazy. Um, and I'm just, to be able to listen to you tonight was painful. Because it's, I'm really constricted. To just have that, that, that incredible attachment that we have to a safe home. A home, an environment that we can get away from things that, that maybe replenish us. You know, by being, you're talking about people who just need to have solitude. Well, I have a lot of solitude, but it's like crazy solitude. You know, with, I have a low-frequency vibration in my home created by who knows what right now. And I have a lot of people who don't believe I'm, they think I'm nuts. Some people... Um, but I read online, and worldwide, people have this phenomena that will happen to their space. And if, if you were just sitting in this beautiful room and you could hear a hum, I, I've never, and I've allowed people to say, well, you're just sensitive. <clears throat> I, I'm not. And um, this is new. It's only been, it's been going on in my house for a couple of years. I've been in my house 23 years. But this guy, I, I had him on a pedestal. He was going to fix it. And he, he 
can't help me, and I have a winter ahead of me. And it only comes in the winter. It's never there in the summer. Um, and it's from a new structure across the alley from my house. <clears throat> and and uh, I, I'm like, wow, I'm going to have to move out of my home that I love that I can afford um, because of a, a sound that is like unfixable. And, and I, listening to you tonight talk about all this, you know, acceptance of what's not comfortable or what's really maybe devastating to you to be able to sit in it and everything. And I'm like, I've tried for two and a half years. And I don't know how to make that happen by using the practice. I, I have such an aversion to even being in my home. And if it weren't for pets, I probably wouldn't even, I'd be... I'd be running away from my house, or I would have sold it by now or something, but don't we all have an attachment to wanting to have a beautiful space that's ours, right, that you can go home to from work or from, you know, just, it's, it's that maybe it's a made-up thing for the human mind that we have a sacred space, you know. I mean, you're talking about it by being at, IMS, and then having to go through that process of going home and going to chaos again and everything. But I bet when you were thinking about some of that, you knew that you could go get to Minneapolis Airport to your home, and you still could recoup, right? You could go into home, your home and just take a breath. But when you know you don't have that, you know, um, so you have the structure. I'm not living in a tent on Franklin Avenue over there, but um, it's I don't really, I can't believe how much of a pedestal I put this guy on that he was going to fix it. And it spontaneously happened today that he came to my home and I was just like, wow, you're leaving and it didn't happen. I don't, so I don't know how to use the practice on something like that. And, and then to go through the whole process of, of maybe even letting go of that space. Like, how do I move? from a space I've been there for so long and I'm very broken hearted over that part. Like I don't know. So we have to, we have just three minutes, but I don't want to not respond to that. Um thank you. And I wish I had, you know, like the right answer not only for myself but for all of us, you know, have the magic the magic answer, this is what it will take to transcend what it means to be human, but there's nothing like that. And there is something about like unresolvability, you know, like accepting that this might not resolve or that it's like a, it requires us to really be creative in how we practice. And I, I mean that really sincerely. And as using it as like these things that are really challenging, that feel like they're unworkable, there's no way around them. Um, I, my, I didn't mean for my talk to sound like, you know, it's, it's easy, but it, it's not. But at some point, you know, we have to reckon with a body, like having a body, for example, that will get sick, that will age and eventually die. And so any of these, I've just heard wise teachers talk about practicing with an unresolved 
things are unsolvable problems as a way of practicing with mortality, our own mortality. Like, what is it? What does it mean? How did, How is it possible to find freedom here, even in the midst of this? It feels like a betrayal. It feels so unfair. Like, how do you accept all of that and still find ways to taste freedom? Like, and it doesn't always mean just being in it. You know, sometimes it's going in and coming out, right? If we can do that, going into that difficulty, retreating away from that, saying no to the difficulty for now whatever that is for each of us. For you, it's the hum in the house, but for somebody else, it's something else. And so it's not like, you know, nobody else has, like we all have that thing, or we will be faced with that thing that will feel like the ultimate betrayal, the thing that's unworkable, the thing that we can't move from or get close to, be intimate with. But that's the question, like, is it, is it possible even in this? And maybe it's not in this moment, what is possible? And let that kind of faith and uh, the faith that we can develop by being willing to touch like small difficulties, like an itch instead of physical pain. Right? Once we know we can do that, then there's this question about like, is it possible to go further? No, we don't have to know the answer always. But that doesn't mean that it's not hard. Thanks for sharing. It's 9 o'clock, and it's hot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for all all for being here. Um, Friday night, there's our monthly self-compassion practice group, if you're interested. Every Friday night, there's a Mindfulness in the 12 Steps group that meets here. What else? There's a workshop this weekend at United Theological Seminary. Uh, Ellen Huffschmidt and Patrice Kelsch. Patrice is one of our teachers here. Ellen is one of our wise elders here. They're talking about... uh, I don't have the full title, but it's around grief and loss, ritual, and around grief and loss. Um, it's supposed to be very good. I talked to Patrice on the phone about it today. There's still space. It's $100 for the weekend. Uh, it's Friday night, 6.30 to 8.30, and then all day Saturday. But if you're interested and want to Google United Eventbrite and then United Theological Seminary, you, can, you should be able to find it. But if you don't, call me, and I'll give you Patrice's phone number, and she'll walk you through it. Or email me, whatever's easiest. Any other announcements for the community? Yes. It starts tomorrow? I think. Okay. It is happening tomorrow. I'm not yeah. sure if that's the first date or not. Okay. But yeah. And I believe it's full. Anything else? Yes, you tomorrow. Right. 6.30? Yeah, 6.30. There's a, a sitting group for people of color that meets every first and third, first and third Thursday in the community room often unless... Um, the group is big, and then try to figure out which group is bigger, the 12-step group or the POC group, and the bigger group gets this room. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Have a good night. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.